Well, thank you for the invitation to, uh, to speak today. You know, uh, Luis uh, preached at our wedding, and uh, he said uh, Tony started showing up at uh, St. John's in the, in the past year at uh, a lot of the receptions and dinners, and he said he was a typical Episcopalian. He came to all the parties and to none of the religious services. <laughs> so today I want to go on record as saying that I was at the nine, and in, in fact, I'm going to show up at the 11 because Anne is on the vestry and uh, she had to usher this morning and she's going to be here for the installation of the new vestry members. So, uh, so I'm going to do double duty today in, uh, in the service. And I sing in the, um, in the choir at 9 o'clock at my church at uh, Trinity. So um, we have to keep getting coordinated. But I hope to be here once in a while and Anne comes to my place once in a while. So uh, in any case... Um, I think the introduction that Luis gave uh, will help set some of the context of what I want to talk about when I say, where are we heading? I, I'm very hopeful about a whole lot of things that, that can happen, but I guess I always have to kind of start a talk of this sort by saying, um, you're getting my viewpoint and my perspective, and um, your tradition is as full as ours with all kinds of viewpoints and directions, and so I could tell you there are a group of people within Catholicism who would think that I'm crazy on absolutely everything that I'm saying here. They have a very conservative point of view, and so there's diversity within Catholicism as well as elsewhere. Uh, in many ways, that diversity, for me, is part of the richness of, um, of Catholicism, and in fact, it's the richness of all of our Christian traditions. So rather than seeing that as a, um, a disadvantage, I see that as a, as a plus. But in any case, coming out of all of that uh, kind of background and recognizing that you're getting my viewpoint and my perspective on things, I'd like to talk a little bit about where I think things are heading. Uh, the Pope and, uh, and uh, Archbishop uh, Welby met just very recently uh, in October, and I'm quoting from an article here that I read in the National Catholic Reporter that talked about that particular meeting. And they were uh, celebrating the, the anniversary of the uh, Anglican uh, and Episcopal uh, Catholic dialogues, uh, but they were also kind of commissioning uh, 19 pairs of bishops who were kind of paired, Catholic and, uh, uh, and Anglican, um, pairing bishops to go out in missionary work. And they um, uh, were trying to kind of make the point that there's a great deal of progress that has been going on and that we want to continue to kind of work towards that. There's an interesting sentence that I would kind of uh, draw out of that. This is a paraphrase from the article, but kind of quotes a joint statement that they issued at that point in, in October. They issued a joint statement declaring that while there continue to be serious obstacles blocking the path to full unity between their two churches, they, the clergy and the faithful should not, and then this is in quotes, they should not undervalue that certain yet imperfect communion that we already share. So there's a great deal that has gone on over the past 50 years that I think already begins to establish a great deal of communion of, of what goes on, and then they talk about serious obstacles that, that come up. I want to talk a little bit eventually about those serious obstacles 
which for me are not so terribly serious. In other words, I think that there's a great deal of dialogue that can go on and that a lot of those issues can uh, be addressed and I think in many ways be solved. And uh, I want to kind of touch on that a little bit as we get towards the end of my, um, of my lecture. But let me talk first about what this imperfect communion is already that we're talking about. I think one of the things, well, and let me also kind of put another background point. A lot of what I'm going to discuss today, I think you may begin to take and say, so what's the big deal? I think that a lot of what came about in terms of the ecumenical dialogue is that Catholicism, Roman Catholicism, has changed a good bit over the past 50 years. The Second Vatican Council was certainly a watershed event. Uh, I was raised in one kind of Catholic church, and I can tell you I don't think at all the way I did when I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. The Second Vatican Council changed things radically, radically. There are a whole group of people who think that what happened was they became Protestant, and they don't like this, you know, and they're all the people who think I'm a heretic, okay? But I think that in point of fact, it wasn't that we suddenly became Protestant, I think what happened was that we finally caught up on a reformation or a renewal that started in the Protestant Reformation and that Catholicism took a long time to get to. Now, I think that in some ways, um, the advantage of our taking a long time to get there in Roman Catholicism is that we didn't throw out a whole lot of things that got thrown out and that are gradually being brought back and that in terms of the dialogue, there are probably a lot of things that Roman Catholicism can still contribute, but in point of fact, a lot of the major changes are that Roman Catholicism finally did its own reformation and took a lot of the effects. So a lot of what I'm talking about in terms of dialogue and in terms of you know, possibilities and what creates an imperfect communion is, is going to sound familiar to you, I think, in some ways. When I was trying to think, you know, what are the brand new things that we can kind of talk about Maybe you've already been there, but Roman Catholics are discovering all of this, and that's leading to a dialogue. Now, what would I say is kind of the essential of what's gone on? What, what has gone on over 50 years that I think is the imperfect communion that has already been established? Well, in point of fact, I think it's a discussion of things like the creed. One of the things that I think Roman Catholicism has done is first of all, go back to the scriptures. That might sound familiar in some ways. We didn't go to the scriptures, you know. We never had any problem with biblical interpretation. We had no problem with fundamentalism because nobody bothered with the Bible, okay? We had lots of doctrine, but we weren't starting with the Bible. Now we're going back to the Bible. Everything starts from biblical interpretation, and from there we try to build up. Well, that may sound familiar to you, but you know, that's creating a lot of common ground because Catholics are finally doing the same thing. And now that they've done that, we're starting our own form of fundamentalism, okay, which is kind of a reaction to biblical interpretation uh, that we didn't experience at all, but we are experiencing now. But going back to the Bible and going back to, you know, the roots of our traditions, huh? Uh, has led us to begin to find a lot of things that I think begin to create common ground. So one of the big things that it did is create a whole new sense of the church as communio, huh? communion. In other words, we don't want to start with institutional structures. 
we want to go back to the biblical text, and when we go back to the biblical text, begin to understand the church as a communion of believers that in the biblical sense begins to set us up as the body of Christ. So the church starts out, if you want, as a, a, a spiritual reality, an inner faith experience that we all share together as being the presence of Christ in the world. Now that's a really important point because it starts us on what is really our common ground. Once Roman Catholicism kind of came back to that, and I think Protestants discovered that as part of the Reformation and as part of their starting with the Bible when they went back, I think it led us to a common ground that recognizes that the church is that body of Christ that is a shared reality. So one of the interesting things that happened in Catholicism was the way in which it began to define communio or communion and that inner bond that is the body of Christ to, in such an extended way that it began to recognize the common bond that we had with others. So in the past, for instance, we talked about Catholic Church as being identical with the body of Christ. So I remember Pius XII. This was, you know, 1939 uh, he started. So when I was born, he was uh, the pope, and he was pope for a long time. Pius XII, in fact, was beginning a renewal that was going on within Catholicism, but it was way before the Vatican Council, and it was still in early stages. But I remember Pius XII put out an encyclical that was called The Mystical Body of Christ. This was an advance, huh? that when we started to look at the church, we didn't start with institutional structures. We looked at the church as basically the body of Christ. Now, Pius XII talked about the mystical body of Christ. I always find that interesting because it kind of keeps the body of Christ a little bit distant. Body of Christ is something, and then mystical body is not quite the same thing, but close. Huh? But in any case, he began to kind of establish a whole theological perspective that said, when you start talking about church, look at it as the presence of Christ in the world today. Well, what was interesting is when Pius XII wrote that encyclical, The Mystical Body of Christ, he said, of course, the mystical body of Christ is in its fullness the Roman Catholic Church. So we were still quite separated from everybody else. And at that point, nobody else was a church, right? Everybody else was separated brethren, okay? But nobody was a church. So Roman Catholicism was still in its little isolation, and it was beginning to move, and it was going back to biblical texts, but it still saw itself as separate from everybody else. Well, you could guess at that point the ecumenical movement meant when you began to agree with everything that we've been teaching, then we'll welcome you back and we'll have Christian unity. Huh? But it all started, this is where we are, and are you going to come? Well, things kept moving, right? So we start going back to Scripture. We start looking at this mystical body of Christ, and then what happens is Second Vatican Council comes along, and what does Second Vatican Council say? Well, initially, the people who are in Rome, how the Roman Curia, these are all the people that are much more conservative yet. They're moving very slowly in terms of what goes on, right? You get movement in theology. Corey is still kind of waiting, you know, judging things and, you know, worrying about where we're going to go. Well, anyway, they wrote all the documents for the Second Vatican Council. 
And when they wrote the document on the church, they started out with a good definition of the church as that body of believers that are under a pope and the bishops that have canon law. And they described it all in terms of institutional structures. And they said, this is the church. The bishops got there. And the bishop said, this document is so bad, we can't even revise it. We're going to scratch the whole thing. Huh? So they scrapped the whole document on the church, and they said, rewrite. Okay? So now theology began to give its input, and, and major renewal took place when we went back to the Bible. So what did they start with in the document that we now have as a document on the church from the Second Vatican Council? We have a document that does not start with the Pope and the bishops. It starts with biblical imagery and two chapters on biblical terminology. And it starts off by saying the church is the people of God. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the vine and the branches. You see what's going on here? In other words, what really establishes church? What I would say, the good news is that Christ is risen from the dead. Okay? That's the good news. That's the heart of the biblical teaching that Christ is risen from the dead. And what does that mean? Christ risen from the dead means that he now pours his spirit into us, that he is a living presence within us, he shares his life with us, and he is now drawing us together as a community to be his presence in the world today. That's the good news. Now, if Christ is risen to be present within us and pours his spirit within us, that draws us together in a new life, a new life in Christ. And how do we describe that new life in Christ? We are the body of Christ. We are the temple of living stones built up into a new temple praising God in the life of Christ. In other words, we share Christ together. So you have one whole chapter that deals with the body of Christ, the vine and the branches, living stones built up into a temple, all those metaphors that are somehow trying to capture that Jesus is risen, alive, present, pours his spirit into us, and has us share a life together to be his presence in the world. And then they develop a whole chapter on the people of God, and people of God kind of gives us this sense of movement forward. Huh? So body of Christ, temple, sheepfold, are all kind of a sense of an internal sharing of life with Christ. People of God gives us a sense of this whole reality in ongoing history, moving along progressing, and ultimately trying to be that presence in the world. So these were the, the metaphors. So church now took on a new meaning. One of the first things that Roman Catholics were told are, you are the people of God. You are the church. Huh? Not Pope and bishops. They got Pope and bishops in there in the third chapter. Okay? So, so we're not going to throw out popes and bishops. They're part of it. But you know what they're part of? The people of God on journey. They are part of the body of Christ. They are trying to help us to be that body of Christ. So the, the, the central reality is we are the church. We are the people of God. We are the body of Christ to be the presence of Christ in the world today. That's all what I'm talking about when we say communio, communio. Now that kind of reality said, well, if, if that's the reality of church, then one of the things they also began to, to write in that document is that that's not coextensive with Roman Catholicism. In other words, they, they got to that little section where, where Pius XII had said, the body of Christ is the Roman Catholic Church, and they said, hmm. But the, the Second Vatican Council was also 
you know, it had conservative people, it had liberal people, it was fighting cats and dogs on how to do this. The Curia in Rome were still saying, you know, and they had to deal with that. And so what did they do? They do what they always do in Roman Catholicism. They used a couple of waffle words, okay? And the waffle words lead to all the problems that are still going on because conservatives read the waffle words one way and all the people who said we changed it deliberately to waffle because we want to move in a new direction and so that's what's going on. So what's the waffle word? Well, they came along and in Latin they said the mystical or the, they just said body of Christ now. It's not mystical, it's body of Christ. Huh? We're no farther removed from Christ than from his own body. Christ isn't someplace and then we're a mystical body someplace else. We are the body of Christ. He is risen and present within us. We share communio, we share his life, and we are his presence in the world. That's a reality. So what did they say? Instead of saying is, huh? in Latin they use the word subsisted. So the body of Christ subsists in the Roman Catholic Church. So what does subsist mean? Well, people who don't want to change anything say subsist, of course, just means is. <laughs> And other people say, no, no, we use subsist precisely not to say is, <laughs> so that in fact, while the Roman Catholic Church is the body of Christ, so, is, so are a whole lot of other people. And then we got to the stage of saying, you know what? All those other people out there aren't just separated brethren, they're church. In other words, communio. So things are extended outward and we already have that bond. So when we talk about imperfect communion, we're talking about communio, and we're talking about everybody being in the body of Christ. That's the first reality. Now that's the heart and the core of what I think is Christianity. And I think it's the heart and the core of what Catholics and Episcopalians, Anglicans, Lutherans, and you name it, huh, Christians share that kind of reality. That's where we ought to start with. Now, maybe you already knew some of that. Roman Catholics had to learn it, but I can tell you that that's the centerpiece right now and that that is where things are pushing. And that is an imperfect communion, but it's really, really important. One of the things that we began to take as kind of common practice at that point was not to rebaptize. Once we are baptized... Huh, we share that in common already. We are baptized into the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. We are baptized into the risen Christ to now take on his life and to be his life in the world. And when we take on that life, we now take on communio. We are now one body of Christ sharing his life together and being his presence in the world. So we don't rebaptize. In point of fact, as the ecumenical dialogues went on, we took all of the creed and said, we don't disagree. In other words, a lot of the things that got to be points of tension in the past were a question of emphasis. It was a question of uh, terminology. It was a question of explaining things. But in point of fact, what we were trying to do was to capture a common bond of being baptized into the life of Christ and trying to describe what all of that meant. So the dialogue continued, and I've got two books in my bookcase that are kind of the summary over all these years of the Anglican, Episcopal, and, and Catholic dialogue, and it, it just runs through the creed. And they started, you know, first with, what does baptism mean? They said, we don't disagree. 
We're not going to rebaptize. We are put into the body of Christ, and we are the body of Christ already sharing that reality. And then they just continued along, and they took all of the creed. And by the time they finished the creed, they said, we don't disagree. What are we saying? We're saying at heart that our experience is that there's a loving God who's in our life, that loving God who is in our life and embraces all of creation has the high point of his revelation to us in Jesus Christ, who now is a living presence within us, who pours his spirit into our hearts and wants us to be his presence in the world. That's what the creed is telling us all about. Now, we have different ways of describing it. There'll be different emphases, but in point of fact, there's no longer disagreement on all of that reality. That, for me, is a load of stuff that is talking about imperfect communion, right? But that's where there's already common ground. And so we're celebrating 50 years of that as, I think, an important starting point. Now, what happens after we do all of that? When I say after, that's a big after, right? Look at all that's already being shared. The entire creed, the heart of Christian faith. Where the problems are are what I would describe as institutional structures. Okay? That's where the problem started. So we don't disagree anymore on the creed. We disagree maybe on how we describe it and explain it. And I can tell you that some of that is because when Catholicism took some of its teaching, it began to push in some directions that people said, this is going to start distorting the reality. And so they started to describe doctrine in other ways. But it's not differing from what the experience is at heart. But then we move to institutional structures. So what happened? Well, one of the things that again, looking at the biblical texts and looking at the traditions, we recognize that this communio, which is basically this body of Christ, this internal bond that we all share, that communio has to be expressed externally. It has to be expressed in human ways. In other words, as human beings, whatever you have as inner bonds always end up in institutional structures. I I remember reading uh, Max Weber, good sociologist, and Max Weber talked about how, you know, any, any group starts out with the charism of its founder, right? So we start with the charism of Jesus. Everybody is alive with the sense of the Spirit and the presence of the risen Christ, and they're out being that presence in the world. It takes about two minutes after all of that, and then people start trying to figure out, now how are we going to describe that? And what are we going to say about it? And before you know it, Peter and Paul are fighting, and the Jewish church is fighting with the Gentile church. In other words, we're human beings, and as soon as you have two Christians, you've got two opinions, and the fights start, <laughs> right? And then people say, now what we've got to do is we've got to get organized here. We've got all these people running off deep, deep ends, and we, we wind up with Gnostics, and we, we've got, uh, you know, um, Arians, and, and, you know, and it goes on and on, and then you get the heretics, right, who don't agree with the mainstream of what's going on. And then what happens is they say, we got to get more organized. And as they get more organized, they get more institutionalized, right? Well, Max Weber describes all of that as what he calls the routinization of charisma. <laughs> Every, everything's great in the first generation, and then they say, now we got to get some rules. Huh? Now we got to get a constitution. Now we have to figure out how we're going to function. Who's going to be in charge? Who's going to be the leader? You, you see what happens? Inevitable. 
okay? But what I want to say is the definition of Christianity is not that routinization of charisma. It's the charisma, okay? And the, the essence of Christianity is not the institutional structures that took shape. It's that inner bond. It's the communio that's there. Now, we need the institutions, and so we're going to have them. But if we spend all our time on the institutions and we miss what is the inner bond, then we miss the imperfect communion that already exists, and we spend all our time on the institutional structures that got to be straightened out. And I can tell you, they will never be finally straightened out. Okay? I mean, even after you get all these splits to straighten things out, then you get more splits, and you get more splits, right? I think one of the gifts of Catholicism is that we manage to keep all the splits in one church. Okay? You just do it by having new churches. Okay? But it's the same kind of problem, it's just handled in a different way. Okay? And those are never going to go away. Everybody says, let's get this solved. You will never get it solved. Okay? So one of the things that I think is going on right now is, first of all, the recognition that we have to distinguish between this, this communio and the institutional forms that it takes. We need to recognize that we are all church in some way already, although we may do that in different ways, and that we need somehow to recognize that the institution always needs to be reformed. Always needs to be reformed. And so that's already, I think, an important advance forward. But one of the things that I think it is leading us to now, which maybe you've already handled in some ways in your traditions, but Catholics are still trying to get used to, and it's what I would call dealing with pluralism. Okay? We always, when I grew up, I had the Catholics ready answer to everything. There was never any problem of saying different opinions. Catholics answer, okay? But we don't have that anymore. So I say, well, what's Catholic? Well, there are lots of people on the website who are saying, I know what Catholic is and you're not it. You're a heretic, <laughs> right? But you have a whole group of other people who are saying, that doesn't exist anymore. We have to recognize pluralism as part of reality in our life. Now, in point of fact, this is not just for religion. This is human institutions. This is human ways of dealing with things. This is politics. This is economics. And we're, we're seeing that in spades in every area of our life right now. We are so polarized in everything because everybody says, I know what's right and you're wrong. Well, that doesn't exist any place in our human reality. What we have to learn to do is to deal with pluralism. And then we have to learn how to dialogue to keep moving forward. But you can bet your boots as you keep solving one problem and getting to unity, another one is going to pop up. Okay? That's just the nature of human existence. One of the problems in the past is that religion for us was a security blanket. So we said, well, I don't care, you know, that politics changes and economics changes and all these different things in life change. I know religion gives me my certainty. Okay? Now, that's a kind of fundamentalism. Okay? Religion gives me my certainty. I think religion is part of our human experience, except it's dealing with another dimension of human life. And that dimension of human life is transcendent, and it, it deals with other realities that are beyond what we can prove. Huh? But it's still, nevertheless, our human attempt to try to figure out what that reality is. 
And that's always going to be pluralistic in some way, and it's always going to be ongoing and uncertain in some ways. But religion is just like politics, economics, and everything else, although religion is dealing with another reality that is different from what politics and economics deals with. But it's still dealing with all of that in human fashion, which means that we're always grappling with the reality, and we don't have certainty. Am I making a point here? Another way of wording all of that, which I think is kind of the big discovery within Roman Catholicism, and maybe it's making it clear for other denominations. So once we started ecumenical dialogue, everybody else did, right? But one of the things that I think uh, we come to recognize as an important facet that I think is really the discovery of the 20th century into the 21st is what I call historical conditioning. Historical conditioning. All of our insights and our reality are always in time and place, okay? We are conditioned by our history. In other words, we are affected by where we are in time and place. Nobody has absolute truth, okay? What happens is we perceive things where we are in time and place. You get in another time, you get another insight. You get in another place, you've got another insight. What we have to do is talk to each other and try to learn from the time and place experiences of what we have and keep moving forward. Now, some people hear all of that and they say, relativism. Okay? And this was one of the big things, you know, even uh, Benedict XVI was always worried about that. You're going to have relativism. Well, I say it's not relativism, it's relationality. <laughs> okay? Relativism says there isn't any truth out there. It's just whatever I feel like. So I wake up this morning and I declare this. Or I give alternate facts. Right? <laughs> you see where it's not just in religion? Not just in religion, okay? But, you know, relativism just says I make up whatever I feel like. We're not saying that. We're saying, no, no, there's a reality out there. The problem is perceiving that reality is always coming from a time and place position. So that's not relativism, because there is a truth there that we're trying to get to. And if we keep listening to each other and talking, we keep getting better perspectives on that truth. But you never get it finished, because you're always conditioned by time and place. And communities are conditioned by time and place. Now, some people are afraid of all of that. They say, relativism, give me the truth, give me the answer to things, and give me my security blanket where religion can give me that if nothing else does. And I say... You're in the wrong world. Okay? Now, fundamentalism was that kind of thing. You know, we started with historical conditioning. Liberal Protestants got there first. Roman Catholics were still saying, we got the truth. And then they said, oh, historical conditioning. And then they caught up with the liberal Protestants. When the liberal Protestants went to historical conditioning, fundamentalism arose. Fundamentalism is not back at the beginning. Fundamentalism is a reaction to liberal Protestant theology that said we are historically conditioned. You have to pay attention to the historical conditioning of biblical authors. You have to pay attention to historical conditioning of readers. You have to pay attention to the historical conditioning of everything. Okay? That created an uncertainty, and people said relativism, and then fundamentalism arose. And I say the biggest problem with fundamentalists is that they disagree on the fundamentals, <laughs> which is very interesting. They're all stuck in time and place, okay? And they're going to evolve in time and place as everybody else does. So that gets to be a problem. 
Catholics had it all lined up still, you know, while liberal Protestants are fighting it off. And then all of a sudden, Pius XII again comes along and he writes an encyclical that says, maybe there's literary genre in biblical texts. Maybe it's not all straight history. Maybe we need to recognize its historical conditioning. Maybe we need to recognize that we're all in time and place, right? And then he unleashed a whole new kind of biblical scholarship within Catholicism, and then all the stuff I'm talking about is what started to come to the fore. And then Catholics started with their own form of fundamentalism. So some of them by going back to the Bible, but Catholics have another kind of unique form of fundamentalism. They just say the Pope will tell me what I'm supposed to believe. Pope doesn't do that kind of stuff. What I love Pope Francis for more than anything else is that he says, don't look to me for the answers, <laughs> okay? I'm historically conditioned just like everybody else, okay? So we're starting to kind of reconceive what we're going to do with the Pope, okay? But it's getting away from a kind of fundamentalism. So historical conditioning is important. So all of these things you see are all revolving around the same stuff, and it's a lot of common ground that we already have. But then it leads to a lot of the problems of the institutional structures. So let me just make a couple of quick points now on the things where they say um, there are still some serious obstacles. But let me tell you, I think the serious obstacles are not so serious if everybody just sits down and starts facing the, the issues more fully. So one of the serious obstacles is that we were all ready for intercommunion and all kinds of things. We're kind of pushing along. You know? should do all of this. And then all of a sudden, you started ordaining women. And Roman Catholics said, oh, well, that takes care of that, right? Now, here's what I would say about the whole thing. We have arguments all the time about ordaining women. And on the Roman Catholic side, you keep getting this argument that says, Jesus didn't ordain women. He ordained men. And I say, well, first thing to look at when you go back to the Bible and you look at it very carefully is that you find out Jesus didn't ordain anybody. Okay? Now, you may have known that. We're still kind of pushing, you know, that Jesus ordained priests. Jesus ordained bishops. Jesus ordained nobody. In fact, what I begin to understand is that what Jesus did was he rose from the dead. He said, be my body in the world. Huh? Be my presence in the world. And then after that, he said... Go figure. That's all he did. That's all he did. The church had to figure out what to do with all of this, and then they also had to take institutional structures. And when they first took institutional structures, they did not set up bishops and priests. If you read Corinth, you don't find any bishops and priests around. You have prophets, teachers, pastors, evangelists, who knows what. In other words, you have a diversity of ministries. In other places, you've got bishops and elders, but they're not the way we came to know bishops and elders. It's a council of people that just simply repeats Jewish structures. And in fact, the bishops, which simply means overseers, may be actually the same people as the elders who are running. They just have different names, huh? bishops and elders, but it's kind of a council of people. And then what happened is the church got more institutionalized. Now, what happened as it got more institutionalized? We got to bishops. And then all of a sudden, the elders got to a lesser category, and elders became priests. There were no priests in the New Testament. The only priests in the New Testament are Jesus and us, the priesthood of all the faithful. Only priests you have in the Bible, okay? So where do priests come from? They're part of the institutional structures of the church, right? 
So you have diversity of ministries, and then all of a sudden they start getting more organized, and by the time they get more organized, you've got bishops, you've got priests, and institutional structures, and we're starting with clergy, right? Now, a nice way of summing that up, I have an Episcopalian priest friend who said, the church went through a dark tunnel, around 100 or so. In other words, after the New Testament, we don't know exactly what happened, but he said the church went through a dark tunnel. So no literature, we don't know what happened. And he said when they came out the other end of the dark tunnel, there were bishops on the cow catcher. <laughs> That's all we know. Institutional structures, and all of a sudden you've got bishops. So anybody who thinks Jesus gave us bishops has missed the point, right? This is part of historical developing, this is historical conditioning, and this is an institutional church trying to figure out how to be the body of Christ in the world today. So we get bishops, okay? You keep looking at the history of Christianity as it develops, and all of a sudden, one bishop gets to be more important. Bishop of Rome. And a bishop of Rome is fighting, you know, to show how important he is, and nobody else is paying much attention until you get to Leo I. So we're probably, I don't know, I forget the dates, but late 400s, early 500s, Leo I saves Rome from getting sacked by Attila, Okay? And the Roman Empire is falling apart, and nobody else is able to save civilization except the Pope, who's got the only organization that's going to work. And before you know it, the Pope is developing. And then gradually over time, that Pope is getting more and more authority. Why? Because the institutional structure is trying to figure out what happens. And then what goes on is the Pope winds up being a problem. For lots of Christian denominations, the bishops wind up being problems. And then what happens is we're going to reform all of this, and so they go back behind bishops and popes, and they say, we didn't have them to start with. We're going to go back to another form of ministry. So we're going to have pastors, or we're going to have presbyters, we're going to have elders, okay? Now, you kept bishops. Roman Catholics kept bishops. But Lutherans kept bishops, but they're not as important as we are. And Presbyterians said, we don't want them at all, okay? This is all part of historical conditioning. It's historical change. And what happened was the church was still trying to figure out how to be the body of Christ in the world today. And in the Protestant Reformation, they did it ultimately by, you know, eliminating bishops in a lot of places. So what's my point? My point is that this is institutional structure and that, in fact, a lot of these things are subject to negotiation. So what I would say is I'm not surprised at anything that's going to happen in the future because nothing is given in a blueprint from Jesus. So my basic principle is if things historically develop, things will historically undevelop, or things will historically develop in new directions, and there is a constant change in the institutional structures. So I will not be surprised at anything that is possible because Jesus just gave us the body of Christ to be his presence in the world, and everything else is historically conditioned. Now, does that mean we're going to change all the structures? Well, I don't think you're going to get rid of bishops. I don't think I'm going to get rid of bishops. I don't think I'm going to get rid of a pope. But I think if we keep redefining them and we keep seeing how they fit in terms of the needs of a communio today, I think there'll be a lot more common ground. So while things look like they are at an impasse, I say we're just part of the historical conditioning. And you may be there sooner in terms of having women being ordained, but I think we're going to get there because there is, there is no blueprint in the Bible. What's going on right now is that some people, this is the more conservative side, people are saying 
this particular historical development was done by the Spirit, and now it's cast in cement, right? So this development of bishops and pope, the way we have it, is now set. Well, I say no. If we go back, this is all part of the historical conditioning of the Bible, and Jesus probably didn't have women around him because women did not have leadership roles in those days, but that in point of fact, as we move to new time and new places, and we have a new role for women, that all of this will be part of the gradual development. So I don't think Catholicism is stuck where it is. I think that it's going to keep moving, but we move very slowly. And in moving slowly, we manage to keep a pluralism inside the church instead of having different churches. And as we do all of that, we gradually help to kind of change mentality as we move along, and it makes it easy to kind of make the change. But that's slow and painful. And I, I always said, you know, sometimes it takes 50 years for a council to take hold. It takes 100 years. You know, one answer that came back to me says, I don't live 100 years. Okay, so people want change. But in terms of the way the institution is going to go, it's going to go slowly. But I think that it's going to go. And then sometimes it goes with quick spurts. Nobody expected Pope Francis. And Pope Francis is going back to what the council wanted to do. Pope Francis is already talking about ordaining married men. Right? That's going to come really soon. I think in our lifetime we're going to see married men being ordained priests. We're going to start to have a commission on women deacons. I don't know why they need a commission. We could send him a load of documents that have already been discussed on all of this, but that's fine, you know. That commission is going to lead us gradually. I'm, I'm convinced it's going to lead us to ordaining women deacons, and then you're going to start getting them into clergy, and then before you know it, it's going to creep a little bit more. Painfully slow, but, you know, you did it, and you ended up with a split, okay? We're going to do it. Maybe we'll kind of hang on. But in the end, I think what's really important here is the underlying thing. We have a lot more in common than we have diversity, and our differences are basically institutional. And institutions will come and go. Institutions will change. Institutions are not the end all and be all. So let me make just one last point. I'll even get to some of the other stuff I want to talk about. But one last point that I think is important is that there are different kinds of dialogue. So the dialogue over doctrine may continue to have diversity. But there's another kind of dialogue, and that's what the bishops, uh, what, what Archbishop Welby and the Pope said. There's another dialogue that you call the dialogue of action or the dialogue of experience. In other words, what we need to do is to share our experience of a Jesus risen and present within us, share an experience of faith that we have by praying together, share an experience that ultimately enables us to share the things that we have in common already, and then that should lead us to go out to a dialogue of action. In other words, we don't need to have our doctrine all lined up in order to go out to work for justice, to work for the poor, to work ultimately to be the presence of Christ in the world today. That's a dialogue that can already take place. So there's a lot of common ground in all of that, and that's what the, the, uh, the archbishop and, uh, and the pope said. We're going to send out missionaries to be the presence of Christ in the world today. How we define that presence that's doctrine. And Pope Francis says all the time, I don't want ideas. I want people. <laughs> and he says, go out and give the good news. That was his encyclical letter, huh? the joy of the gospel. What's the joy of the gospel? Not what I'm going to do with a pope or bishops. Huh? The joy of the gospel is Christ is risen from the dead. He's given us his spirit. He's present in the world today. He loves you, and he wants you to be his presence in the world today. That's the good news. We already have that in common. And that's the dialogue of action 
that we need already to engage in, and those are the possibilities of an imperfect communion that I think will simply get more perfect as we keep moving along in historical conditioning.